Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm back here with James Kovacevic, the host of Rooted in Reliability podcast. James, how are you? I'm doing well, Rob. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Uh, I had a great time seeing you last week at PMAC, and I'm glad you made it home safely. What did you think of the conference? I think it was a good conference. Uh, Had a lot of fun in the workshop, had a lot of fun in some of the other presentations as well. It was a good opportunity to catch up with uh, people that I haven't seen in a while and meet a lot of new people. Yeah, that's true. I I definitely met a lot of new people that I've been connecting with on LinkedIn, but it was cool to see them in person. Yeah, absolutely. And the other great thing it was, was able to listen to some of the stories. A lot of the presentations were from people implementing these changes within their organization. So it was good to hear a lot of those stories and some of the challenges they had to overcome to implement maintenance and reliability best practices. Yeah. I mean, implementation really, like regardless of what the project is, is really kind of where the rubber hits the road. So it's it's something I think people still have challenges with. Oh, absolutely. The implementation part is the hardest part. Um, the technical stuff for us engineers and tradespeople is easy. Um, it's getting people to do what you need them to do with us, the hard part. <laughs> yeah, th- that'll be another podcast, I think. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I wanted to have you on, James, because, you know, last, last week you did a four-hour, well, half-day seminar about spare parts. And, and, you know, I was sitting in on it and I learned a fair amount, even though I've done a fair amount in spare parts in my career as well. Yeah, it was a great workshop. Um, One of the things I find is that organizations, they don't take a methodical or data-driven approach to spare parts. And that's why we end up with too much of the parts we don't need, not enough of the parts we do need and so on and so forth. So that's why I put on that workshop. Yeah, and I, I think that even with some of the data data that they use, some of the KPIs lead people in the wrong directions. But uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. So how did you get your start in spare parts? So in a past life, I was working for a large organization that was working through uh, their spare parts management process. And I was put in charge of figuring out how that organization was going to change the way they manage spare parts in North America. So from a corporate standpoint, I did a lot of research, figured out, okay, what has worked, what has not worked for organizations, 
and kind of laid out a blueprint of what I thought would be a good approach to take um, in the new spare parts management process. Did a pilot with that, had some success, had a lot of learnings, went back and revised that blueprint to make some updates, some changes based on our learnings. And then from there, we rolled that out across the North American uh, facilities. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I think that one thing you mentioned in in the seminar that, I mean, is very insightful. And it's something that I saw that a, not a lot of people understand, at least when I was doing the, some of the work at tech, was that like the reason to hold spare parts, you know, we talk about downtime and uptime and, and doing all this, you know, maintenance and stuff, but the real, like the real reason behind it all is risk. So can you, do you want to elaborate a little bit about risk and, and how spare parts kind of either contribute or reduce your risk? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what all of maintenance is. And if you look at asset management, the three principles or three things we're trying to balance within asset management is cost, risk, and performance. So when you consider spare parts as a risk mitigation tool, what we're mitigating is downtime. If we have the part in stock, we'll be able to repair it quicker to get it back up and running quicker. What I commonly see is no some organizations are not willing to accept any amount of downtime. And as a result, they stop, they try to stock everything. For example, one of these sites I was doing some work at, they had about five years worth of electrical boxes in their storeroom. They could get one from down the street in about 10 minutes. So was it really worth stocking all that inventory for no reason? And that's where there needs to be some understanding about risk. So if you can get the part within an hour or two from a distributor down the road, from a sister site in an hour or two, do we really need to hold lots of stock on hand? Probably not. We only need to hold enough to mitigate that one unplanned downtime event. And that's it. The rest of the work, the rest of the parts we can plan and schedule for, and we don't need to stock all those parts. And so something there that I'm not sure a lot of people know, but holding spare parts and holding inventory, it costs us money. And in general, you know, it's 20 to 30% per year of the, you know, the spare parts cost. I was going to say absolutely. And for those that aren't aware of what makes up that cost, it's your insurance, it's taxes on the inventory, it's the time your staff take to cycle count, keep it clean, the HVAC of the area, all those different things add up. It's also the cost of money. If you're tying up your working capital with spare parts, you may the organization may have to borrow money to do CapEx and do other certain things. So as a result, we're going to end up paying on that money we're borrowing as well. So all that's taken into consideration for that 20 to 30%. Absolutely. And that's something that, so if we look at spare parts, it's really a balancing act between the risk of having downtime and, you know, the, like what, how much downtime that would be versus the cost of holding additional spare parts. Absolutely. And that there is a balance when you include the cost of purchasing as well is economic order quantity. You're trying to balance how much money do we tie up in working capital versus how much does it cost us to purchase the part, process a PO, receive it, all that fun stuff. Um, And that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to balance that based on all the different demands within the organization. Absolutely. And so you did mention that you had a statistic in the course 
about the cost of purchasing or just running one, uh, making one order? What was that again? So most organizations, it'll cost anywhere from 50 to 125 to $150 to process a PO. And by process a PO, I mean the time it takes to write the requisition, get that converted to a purchase order, get the purchase order approved. When the inventory is received, goods receive it, process the invoice, and then pay that invoice. All those activities add up to people's time, which in turn translates into dollars. Those organizations that are more automated will typically be on the lower end of that scale, but those that have still a manual process will be at the higher end of that scale. Yeah, that was one thing I found when I was doing some work at tech was that process was fairly automated um, in a sense that they had you know default um, vendors for each part, and it was just a matter of kind of adding a plus one to the to the CMMS to get one out. So I think it's something. I mean, it it depends where your definitely depends where your organization is at with that system. Absolutely, it's like like you said, it's very dependent upon your organization. But it's important to understand what that rough order of magnitude is for your organization when you start looking at economic order quantities. So economic order quantities, you want to break that down for us? Yeah. So economic order quantity is the balance of how much money am I going to tie up in working capital in our inventory carrying costs versus how much does it cost me to order a part? If it doesn't cost you a lot to order parts, then it, it will be you would be better off as an organization to order more frequently. Now, if you have a high ordering cost, you may be better off at ordering less frequently and holding more inventory on hand. Really, economic order quantity is trying to balance those two, the cost of holding the inventory versus the cost of purchasing inventory and getting what is that ideal number for your organization. Absolutely. And and so one thing when I was working at tech, one thing that we were working on was we were running um, spare parts optimization like Monte Carlo simulations uh, with the University of Toronto. And we kind of were looking at the co- the overall cost of holding and cut, trying to minimize both the, the cost of inventory versus the essentially cost of risk. And one of the findings was we had uh, five coal mines within an hour drive of each other. And one of the big things that when I go out to organizations now and I see that, you know, they're, they have different fleets or they, they buy like two gearboxes that are one type and two that are another type that don't have interchangeable parts. Um, I really kind of, it, it hurts a little bit because there's a cost to that, not only in a sense that um, the purchasing, you know, you have to purchase stuff, but there's a cost to your spare parts that I think a lot of the people who are making the decision to purchase, maybe it's a cheaper unit this, you know, today versus a cheaper unit two years ago. Um, and so one of the findings was that if we optimized each of the five mines independently compared to an optimized store for one central storage location that each of the five mines could access, there was a 15% savings by moving from five stores to one store. And so it's just kind of a thing about diversifying your risk 
And obviously, like if you have, you know, a hundred gearboxes of the same type, you don't need to hold a spare part for each one of them, most likely. Um, versus if you have only one gearbox of that type, you might actually have to hold one spare. So your per unit inventory goes up. Yeah. And that, and that's where the standardization comes in. That's where we start thinking about upfront equipment design, design for maintainability, those sorts of things. When we standardize equipment, we can start sharing parts across sites. If the likelihood of having uh, a critical gearbox fail at all three sites or five sites at the same time is very, very low. So why carry five gearboxes when we can probably just put one in the central storeroom and still mitigate the vast majority of the risk. Maybe if it's a very long lead time, then maybe we'll put two in the central storeroom. Um, that way we're always covered. We have to do the analysis to determine if that's the right move, but that's a lot better than putting one at every single site. So by standardizing your spare parts and having a centralized storeroom or at minimum a SEMA mess that you can see what's at other locations, um, you can definitely drive down your overall inventory costs. Absolutely. And I think it's something that not a lot of people think about until they start working in this space. Like if you're ordering a new asset, you're not entirely thinking about, you know, the cost of holding inventory. You're more thinking about, well, how's this asset going to run and what's my cost of maintenance on that asset? Exactly. But that's where, you know, equipment specifications come in, um, internal company specifications. So when there's figuring out what they need. They can provide that to the vendors saying, we want Allen Bradley or Siemens PLCs or whichever one they standardize on. We want these types of motors and standardizing on those things goes a really long way, but it requires that upfront work. Yep. Uh, a lot of, a lot of stuff up requires the upfront work. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And so actually one of those things, so with that project, like the, the actual, people who are going to hold the inventory for us was our, um, was one of our vendors. And you kind of talked a little bit about it in your workshop. How do people take advantage of a vendor managed kind of storeroom? Well, there's, there's different kinds of vendor managed storerooms or inventory. One would be where the vendor runs the entire storeroom. You get a third party to manage every aspect of it. Um, they, you generally get savings because they do this at other facilities. You get leverage buying, they standardize things, stuff like that. Another way to do it is to have vendor managed inventory for certain parts. Um, personally, in one organization I was with, we had some very expensive gearboxes and servos that we typically went through about one a year, but we didn't want to pay for those up front and just have them sit on the shelf. So we worked with one of our vendors so that they would, purchase the inventory, keep it on their shelf. But if we called, we would get it within an hour. So we didn't have to tie up all that working capital for having those sitting on our shelves. Another vendor was able to supply a, a specialized component, but instead of them holding it on their shelves, we were allowed to keep it on our shelves. And when we consumed it, then we would pay for it. So there's a variety of different models that you can use to share some of that risk, uh, reduce some of your internal costs as well with your vendors. My only caution is make sure you research your vendors very well. Make sure you have a good agreement. If they're going to keep it on their shelves, make sure you have 
some sort of emergency phone line to call, those sorts of things. So if something happens on a Saturday or a midnight shift, um, you get access to those parts. There's a lot of different ways and they definitely can go a long way to reducing your total inventory costs. Um, but there's other ways as well. And, you know, proper planning, a good preventative or predictive maintenance program can help you drive down your spare parts costs as well. Because as you find defects further up the PF curve, you plan and schedule and property. You can start ordering parts as a just-in-time inventory method. Yeah, that's a great tip. Is I mean, a lot of the work that we do in maintenance starts with, with good planning and scheduling. Yes, absolutely. If we can identify a known failure mode, understand that job, scope it properly, cap, and then order those parts with plenty of lead time to when that when we're going to make that corrective repair, um, why stock it? We may need to stock that part because other failure modes, we don't have that detectability, if you will. They're more random in nature, so we may have to stock them for that reason. But if we can detect it and we can trend it and plan for it, why stock it? Yeah, for sure. And so um, what I wanted to get into you also is like from my experience with the work I did at Tech, there was significant savings to be found in the storeroom. And to be honest, the work is fairly easy. Like I was I was looking in the neighborhood of tens of millions of dollars in savings um, on an annual basis. Do, do you have any examples for us of some cost savings in the spare room? Yeah, absolutely. So one facility I was working with, they had about $4 million worth of parts on hand. Not a huge amount, but enough to, you know, warrant some attention. All we did was we did a basic min-max review using basic formulas that took into consideration usage and lead time. With that, we were able to identify about $450,000 worth of overstock. So this, these were parts that were still used. We were just stocking way too many of them given our usage rates. So we were able to re- change our min-maxes and work down that inventory and not replenishment, not replenish it until it met the new min. And we only brought it back up to that new max. So it freed up a lot of working capital. Within that same store, and we identified about $60,000 worth of parts that were no longer needed on site. These assets had been gone for a period of time. They weren't used anywhere else. So it allowed us to put provisions into the budget and write those off in the next fiscal year, clearing out a tremendous amount of room in that storeroom. But it wasn't all just reducing the inventory. What we also found were there were some critical spares as we worked through those formulas that we weren't stocking enough of. So we ended up stocking, I think, about another thirty dollars or $40,000 worth of parts because we were understocking those to begin with. So overall, we reduced a significant amount of inventory value without introducing any risk to that site. Yeah, it sounds like you actually reduced the risk if you're stocking up on a few items. Exactly. And the one concern from the site itself when we were working through this was you're going to take all these spare parts away. We're not going to have the parts when we need them. We weren't going after the, you know, the critical or insurance spares, if you will, the ones that we have and we hope we never have to use or stuff like that. We were looking at parts that were consumed. And if they weren't being consumed, we validated that they are still in fact needed, but we didn't reduce the the inventory level of those critical spares. All we did is optimize the levels of the existing stock. 
Yeah, that's a that's a big thing, and and it's a great project and something that you do. You also mentioned during the seminar, and that's critical to being able to do this kind of work is good CMMS data. Do you want to break down what kind of data we need to do this kind of analysis? Yep, absolutely. Now, really, all we need to do these types of analysis are we need the lead time of the part. I would say a normal or average lead time and then a max lead time. The consumption rate. So how many of these are we consuming per year? And the price of the part. After that, all we need to do is understand what is our purchasing cost, like we talked about previously, anywhere from 25 to 150. And what is our inventory holding cost percentage? Once we have those, we have enough to calculate min, max, safety stock, economic order quantity, all those things. Now, if we have the data within the CMMS, that just makes our life easier. But if we don't have it, we can get a lot of that from the vendors rather quickly. Ask for a price, updated pricing and lead time on one item. We're going to get the normal lead time or their estimated lead time plus the new pricing. All we got to do is look at past consumption rates. If it's a new part that we're looking at stocking and we don't have consumption rates, what do we think we're going to consume based on like equipment, like components, those sorts of things? Even if it's a guesstimate at best, um, we do that for the first year and then we optimize it the second year and revise based on what we've learned right? This optimizing the spare parts data is an evergreen process. We don't have consistent lead times, consistent usage rates. So as a result, we have to revise our reorder points based on the changing nature of the maintenance spare parts. Absolutely. I would add, I would add a few more pieces of data that I want in that analysis. One is the downtime cost or opportunity cost. The second one is your failure rate of your equipment. So some of the stuff, um, like if you have, let's say you have an aging fleet of gearboxes, you know, it's fairly likely that you're going to want to stock some more because you expect more failures coming up versus if you have a brand new plant, you can probably assume that, you know, less of them are going to experience failures. Absolutely. There's lots of more advanced ways to drive this. Um, you know, if you start really diving into the reliability engineering piece, you can make those changes. In addition to how your CMMS is set up can influence those numbers dramatically. If you're using a demand-based reordering process, then really your CMMS is only going to reorder what is called out in upcoming work orders. If you're using a consumption-based model, it's going to ignore any future demand based on upcoming work orders and only manage the min-max. And there's some that allow you to do both, which is very nice. Um, but depending on which one of those you're using, that could dramatically impact what those value are, values are as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, it's something that I didn't even know about until you mentioned it last week. So do you want to just like give us a breakdown of you know, what's the downside of each of those methods. All right. So demand-based planning is really just focused on what is the forecast consumption of these parts. So it's going to look at, you know, what parts are called out on work orders and really drive that. The one advantage to it is you're really only ordering what you actually need to get the work done. Now, before everyone gets up in arms about it, 
you typically use a safety stock with that. So that way you always have the one or two or whatever the calculation tells you on hand for those unexpected events. It's a good way to drive down your inventory costs. But if you don't have a mature preventive maintenance, predictive maintenance program, or a mature plan scheduling program, it's probably not the best way to do it because you will never have the parts you need because you're not planning in time. Now, from a min-max standpoint or consumption-based standpoint, those typically ignore any future demand. So if you have a upcoming job that requires 20 of these components, but you normally only stock 10, it doesn't care that you have a demand for 20 coming up. It only cares about what that min-max is. So as a result, if you're using that sort of approach, you have to make sure you order those parts ahead of time and not rely on the MRP system to drive it. Now, SAP is a great example. You can use either or, and there's different things you can do within the work order to drive different different things from occurring. So for example, say we want to manage a part on a consumption basis, min-max, but we need a lot for an upcoming job. There is a way in the work order to force that to reorder or to order those parts, even though it's not a demand-based part. So you really have to know your CMS and how your parts are set up to really fully take advantage of either one of those options. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. And and if anyone's listening, figure find out what your CMMS is using because it's definitely going to be something that you'll need to know. And if you can switch it, that's great too. But definitely find out at least so then you can manage what you're using. So we kind of touched on it a little bit right at the beginning, James, was that you know, KPIs around storerooms sometimes I think misguise, misguide the storeroom manager. And, and, and the reason I say that is if we're using um, a KPI like, like turns, oftentimes critical components that maybe don't turn that often, like I'm thinking like transformers, um, you probably want to have them but you're not expecting really it to turn very often. So if they're using a, a metric like that, they'll often, you know, say that the transformer is not a, you know, is not a piece of equipment that they need to hold in stock, which is a big problem when that transformer fails. And kind of on the opposite end of that, if they're looking at like some, a metric like, I misspoke there, the actual KPI is service levels. And they say, hey, you know, we need a stocking level over 95%. Then sometimes we'll be holding parts, like way too many parts. How do we balance kind of the KPIs that we're using on our storeroom? Yeah. And KPIs, regardless whether it's storeroom or any other discipline within maintenance and reliability, can drive inadvertent behaviors. Meaning if my... If I'm being solely measured on stock turns, there's lots of things I can do to hit that number. So we always want to have balancing KPIs. So if we're going to use stock turns, for example, as a KPI to manage how well our inventory is sized for the organization, we want to balance that with stock outs because you can really drive stock turns high by not stocking a lot of parts. But then the adverse effect, you're going to have a lot of stock outs, right? So you want to make sure you balance them appropriately. Same thing. So just keep that in mind as you're setting up your storeroom KPIs is you want to have a balancing KPI. If you look at SMRP's uh, best practice guide with all the metrics, 
they will actually call that out in a lot of the metrics. So if you look at stock turns, it'll say recommend using with stock turns and so on and so forth. So really give that some consideration. The other thing with those KPIs is if you're going to take one that's you know slow moving obsolete or parts that haven't turned in so many months or years, or whatever the case is, you need to put some criteria behind that. So that way we're not trying to pull out those critical spares like those transformers you mentioned that while we don't use them often, they're very expensive, long lead times. And when they go, we really need them. So you need to put some criteria in there to make sure that, yeah, we're going to check and make sure they're still value added and need to be within the facility or the storeroom. But we're not constantly having this argument with finance about these particular parts as well. Yeah. And there was something that you mentioned at at the conference where you you had a process for evaluating components that didn't turn. Do you want to tell that to everybody? Yeah. So one of the things we did is if it was a critical spare or flag this critical, we reviewed it every so often. But what that review consisted of for those critical non-turning spares was, does the asset it belongs to still on site? Yes. Okay. Well, then that answers that question. We're done. You know, we may review min-maxes if, you know, something like that. But if it was a critical asset or critical spare for an asset and it was still on site, then we had the agreement with finance. Okay, we understand this is more insurance. We're not too concerned about it. They would leave it alone. Now, if it wasn't flagged as a critical spare and we weren't getting turns, then we actually had to go in, do a deep analysis, justify the cost, do all those different things. Um, But for those critical spares, we did have that understanding. And all we had to do is validate that it was still being used for an asset on site. Yeah. And that, that is great. And it, and it's like a fairly quick process, right? Like you could sit down and bang out, you know, probably a hundred components in an hour in terms of whether they're critical or not. Absolutely. When you, when you go to do this analysis, you mentioned you're doing some work with the university of Toronto, but when we did this optimization, we built a very simple spreadsheet that used the calculations for min, max, economic order quantity, safety stock, and so on and so forth to drive a lot of this with us. So we would input that data, we'd put the current values, and it would show us any changes that were up that were going to happen. So we didn't have to go and re-upload everything. We only focused on the one that drove those changes. Yeah, perfect. And so another problem that I've seen in the spare room management is lost parts. How do we make sure that we don't lose any of our inventory? So great question. Um, It really depends on your organization's maturity. If it is a very mature organization, talk to the guys, make sure they're signing stuff out. If they're not that mature at that point, then maybe we need to secure that storeroom you know, maintenance guys can only get parts when they have, when a supervisor's with them or from a storekeeper during the day. There's a lot of different things that can be done. It's really heavily driven though by the maturity of the culture within that organization. So if you're having specific problems with that, I suggest you reach out because we could spend 30, 40 minutes just on that topic alone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And if anyone has any questions on any of this stuff, you know, feel free to reach out to myself or James on LinkedIn, or, uh, you know, you can email James at, it's jkovacevic at erudicio.com, right? Correct. Yep. Perfect. Um, 
Yeah. So if anyone's listening and they want to get started on their storeroom management, like where do they start? So assuming they have an existing storeroom and existing inventory, I would start to think about what what are the KPIs that we're using for spare parts that aren't where we want them to be? Is it stock turns? Is it stock outs? You know, is it slow moving inventory? Is it inventory accuracy? Um, really understand what performance measure is below where you want it to be. Once you have that, then you can really start diving into understanding why that is and then go from there. So if you you have low stock turns, then you might have might be carrying too much inventory. So it might be inventory optimization time. If you're having issues with inventory accuracy, understand why that is. Are we not receiving things properly? Are we not cycle counting things properly or at all? Um, do we have issues with signing parts out and then work to adjust that particular area first? Yeah, for sure. So I guess one of my questions before we kind of sign off here is, what are the biggest mistakes that you see when people are doing spare parts management? I would say in the vast amount of organizations that I've worked with, there's two things that typically occur. One, they're not using data to drive the decision-making. Many organizations don't have a data-driven approach to establishing min, max, economic order, safety, stocks, so on and so forth. What they do is the mechanic says they need two, so they take that, then they double it or triple it, and that's their max. They use approaches like that. There's very simple formulas you can use to calculate min, max, and so on and so forth. Start using those. That'll help to right-size your inventory. The second thing is, is not having that good data to begin with. Many organizations don't have a naming convention for parts. They don't have true lead times within their CMMS. A lot of organizations have a default where they put 10 or 15 days or 20 days for every single part in their CMMS, regardless of what it actually is. That's going to lead to improper analysis, improper calculation of reorder points, and it really leads to a lot of issues. Um, In terms of the naming convention, it leads to a lot of duplication and stuff like that. So I would say they don't have the right data and they're not using data to drive decisions. Yeah, that was one thing that you mentioned that was also, you know, pretty enlightening is just the naming convention, you know, definitely affects how many you store. Like if you're holding one of each type, you know, you're not actually holding one, you're holding, you know, three or four different of the same part, just named differently. Exactly. Or you may also be looking at fit form function equivalents. This SKF bearing has the exact same specifications as this Tempkin, as this NTN, and so on and so forth. Um, if you get your naming convention right, you get the attributes captured in the CMMS, you can identify those fit form function duplicates and really start driving down your inventory as well and getting a true understanding of your actual consumption. Absolutely. And you did make a recommendation um, about how to kind of orient spares in your stock room. Do you want to share that with everyone? Yeah. So one of the ways I recommend is for your generic type parts, bearings, motors, gearboxes, you organize them that way. Then once you have your major categories organized, then you look at those specialty items that come from a single manufacturer, then organize the remaining by those specific manufacturers. The other thing you typically want to do is the fast moving parts, Put those towards the front of the storeroom. Your slow moving ones, put them towards the back. It seems silly, but if you have a storekeeper walking 200 feet 
every time he needs to get a bearing, he's got to get 20 of those a day. How much time is he wasting? Whereas if you had bearings at the front, you only had to walk 10 feet, you'd be saving a lot of time that way as well. So you need to organize it based on the category of the parts as well as the usage. Awesome. No, that's a, that's another great tip that I don't think a lot of people think about as well. Um, I guess the last thing I got for you, James, is do you have any top tips for spare parts management that you just really need to share that we haven't covered yet? I don't know if there's anything extra I want to talk about, but the one big thing that I'll just reemphasize is there's basic formulas for min, max, economic quarter quantity, so on and so forth. Start using those if nothing else. We don't need to start off with advanced statistical tools, although they definitely do make a difference and they can help, but most organizations aren't there. So start with the basics, start with the basic min, max, economic order, quantity, so on and so forth. And for the listeners who don't know what those are or have trouble finding them, if they want to reach out to me on LinkedIn or email, I can send you a cheat sheet that I have with those on them. Um, That way you guys can start using those to drive them forward. The one tip though that I don't think I mentioned is that if you want to implement these formulas, you want to move to a data-driven spare parts program, you need to make it easy to use. So if you expect people to do economic order quantity, longhand, and all this stuff, it probably won't get done. So take those formulas, put them into an Excel spreadsheet, pre-populate it so they input some data, it does the calculations automatically. Yeah, it'll take an engineer you know, an hour or two to build, but it'll save the storeroom staff so much time, they're more likely to use it as opposed to manually, manually doing those calculations. Yeah, that's a great tip. And I mean, again, it's it's what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, right, is implementation is really, I mean, if we do all the calculations and we don't actually change our stocking levels, we haven't really done anything, right? So having that implemented is is so key. Yes, absolutely. You can have the best formulas, the best statistical analysis tools on hand, but if you can't get people to use them or follow through with the recommendations, it's not going to do us any good. So whatever you implement, make sure you follow some sort of change management process, whether it's ADCAR or Coddle's model for change, whatever you choose to do, make sure you're following something to drive and cement those changes within uh, within your organization. Perfect. You know, James, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on again and, and definitely, you know, sharing your knowledge on spare parts. Um, do you have anything coming up that you want people to you know, to connect with you at? Well, I will be at SMRP's annual conference company coming up in a couple of weeks in Orlando. I have a paper, I believe on Tuesday titled, Do You Walk By Poor Reliability? And then I have a workshop on Thursday morning, um, how to run a successful reliability project. So I'll be there. Feel free to pop in for the talk. We will also have the Rooted in Reliability booth set up at the annual conference coming up. So feel free to stop by that as well. Aside from that, I'll be at Accelerate down with the Fluke team and E-Main team in November down in Florida. So if anyone's attending that, feel free to uh, say hi as well. Yeah. And that's and that's one thing that if you're not doing it yet, uh, James is the host of Rooted in Reliability. Definitely give that one a listen. It's available on all the platforms as well. Um, or you can find it at Accendo Reliability, uh, the the reliability.fm page. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. So, James, you know, thank you for coming on. 
We appreciate it a lot. And I, you know, I look forward to seeing you again. I won't be at SMRP or uh, Accelerate, but I'm looking forward to seeing you next year. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's PMAC or some other upcoming conferences, I'm sure our paths will cross again shortly. <laughs> yeah, as the as the uh, road warriors and conference uh, guys, we, we definitely will do that again. Uh, and for uh, everyone listening, you know, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something. If you have any questions uh, about spare parts management, you know, you can email James. You can email me. You can message us both on LinkedIn. Follow both of us. James puts out some great content on LinkedIn as well. Um, if you're looking for any other reliability projects, uh, you want to know about what Erudicio is doing. They're doing some cool stuff in augmented reality. Um, definitely check out their booth at SMRP or just go to their website, um, erudicio.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project. Subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day 